Welcome everyone and happy Friday. Hope you're having a terrific week. Enjoying some of this great rain we've been getting. Definitely starting to feel a lot more like fall out there. We hope you are getting the opportunity to enjoy that. I am Kevin McDonald, your host and executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And this is the podcast for New Mexico in Focus. Today, Friday, October 1st, a new month no idea where September went and I know a lot of you share that Uh, and we have got so much great stuff for you this week as always we so appreciate you subscribing and tuning in and listening to things here it's a great way for us to allow you to take the show with you wherever you go this weekend and also bring you lots of other content we just don't have time for in the show this week was a big one around the Albuquerque's mayor race which is coming up in just over a month. November 2nd is election day, but early voting will start next week, as well as absentee voting. And this Monday, we live-streamed the New Mexico Black Voters Collaborative Mayoral Forum with incumbent Tim Keller, as well as challengers Manny Gonzalez and Eddie Aragon. You can head to our website at newmexicoandfocus.org to watch that, and we'll be bringing it to you next week as well. And we hope you will tune in for that. Partly uh, based around that forum, our line opinion panel this week talks about how the race is shaping up. It's been a wild one already and wanted to get their thoughts on it, especially the addition of uh, Eddie Aragon into this race. He is the lone Republican, although this is a nonpartisan race, uh, but uh, his entrance definitely going to have some impacts here. Joining us on the line this week, I should mention, regular Dan Foley, former House Minority Whip. Also, we are joined by Laura Sanchez. She's an attorney. And we welcome back public health expert Michael Bird. So let's jump right into it. Here's their conversation about the mayor's race here in Albuquerque. Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller's defense of his seat at City Hall began in earnest this week as challengers Eddie Aragon and Bernalillo County Sheriff Manny Gonzalez went after the mayor in two separate forums, the Black Voters Collaborative and a joint debate sponsored by KKOB Radio and the Chamber of Commerce. The big topics were crime and homelessness, as you might imagine, two very visible challenges for the state's biggest urban area. Here to talk politics, here's our line opinion panel. Public health expert Michael Byrd is with us once again this week. So is former House Minority Whip Daniel Foley. And we'll start with attorney Laura Sanchez. Now, Laura, it's always interesting to hear the candidates talk in the presence of their opponents. (laughs) Did anyone make or lose ground from the first two forums this week? Well, you know, it is is always interesting when you see all of them up Mm -hmm. there together. We saw some very different styles, I think. Um, And... It's interesting to see sort of the, their approach in terms of attacking. Um, obviously, it's <laughs> Tim Keller is our current mayor. He's the guy that's got more, I think, of the, you know, the presence, and he's going to be on the defensive, um, and the other two are going to be attacking him. But I thought overall, um, uh, the mayor came out looking, I think, as expected, very mayoral, right? I mm-hmm. mean, he mm-hmm. he very much was talking about the future, was was being more. Um, broad about stuff and the others were really trying to narrow in um on on their particular issue and crime was a big big part of the entire um 
the entire feel. And I think that's an important issue for us mm-hmm. and one that, uh, that the mayor has to figure out how to address. Mm-hmm. Hey, Daniel, got to go right to you on this one. Eddie Aragon, of course, is a Republican and Manny Gonzalez is sort of running like a Republican. Uh, is there enough undecided votes out there for a winner to emerge from those two? Or are we hoping, they hoping for a runoff? Uh, no and no. No and no. Okay. Why and why? Uh, yeah. So so I think the only chance that anybody had of defeating Mayor Keller was with Manny, with, was with Manny Gonzalez being able to corral Republican votes and pick off non-progressive Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, now, with Eddie Aragon getting in and decisively going to split the Republican votes, um, it, it's, it's a foregone conclusion. I mean, Mayor Tim Keller should be thanking Eddie Aragon and throwing a huge party for him uh, because I think he was in a battle if it was a one-on-one race. Mm-hmm. I think without there being a one-on-one race, it's a he's going to win a huge victory. Um, and and I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, in these one-on-one battles, as the incumbent, you, you got to be careful mm-hmm. because everything is focused on you. Once it becomes three or more, everything's not focused on you anymore. Mm-hmm. You got these guys doing their side battles over here right. and it deflects some of the opportunity for you to look. And as Laura said very well, very eloquently, you know, you get to be the one who seems like you're the eloquent leader, the adult in the room, because those guys are squabbling. They're both coming after you and you get to kind of, you know, mm-hmm. put yourself above it. So, but let me, yeah, ask, I don't, you, let me I don't, ask you this though. Does that squabbling and add up to a less than 50% take for no. the mayor and we get into a runoff that does not know because seem... th- because mm-hmm. because you ha- the mayor's going to get all the progressives there's no doubt that the mayor is the progressive Good darling they're, yeah. they're they're not moving mm-hmm. now all of the conservatives republicans are going to go for eddie aragon the hardcore conservatives and you got this group in the middle who probably doesn't care now that they aren't they feel like they're not going to make a difference mm-hmm. right you know going out there when you say listen i'm going to go vote for manny because i think we're going to beat tim keller now you're going to throw your hands in the air like never mind it's not worth my time which i think just adds to the reason why tim keller uh will win re-election i i think he'll win it easily on election night and i think it'll be a wow uh, a, an easy victory for him on election night dude we're some weeks away are you, are you seriously well, I mean, clearly something could happen between now and then. There's no doubt about it. We literally just elected a U.S. congresswoman who ran against a sitting state senator who, thanks to the incompetency of the Republican Party, couldn't even win his own Senate district in the race. So what Fair makes point. you think that there is any move within that race? That seat is wholly contained in the city of Albuquerque. What makes you think that anything has changed from that election to this election, that there's going to be this groundswell movement uh against the mayor i don't see it mm-hmm. i just i don't see it i don't see that there's been a a uh, a good enough job now we can have a long conversation about why i don't see that and what the ramifications let me are ask, but let me ask you to I hold that i gotta get my man michael get my mind michael in here good good points though for sure uh you know michael tim keller was first on the air this week with an ad talking about how he's handled all their hurdles you know in front of him during the pandemic you know it's important for two reasons first as just mentioned, he has the chance to define himself more to more casually involved voters. And second, it's not clear if either his opponents will be able to mount an effective ad campaign. That's the part that interests me. I'm curious of your thoughts on that. Well, first of all, I'd say ditto, ditto to Dan. I think that uh, I think I think he's got it right on this. Um, mm-hmm. And I just um, you know when when you look at the qualifi- qualifications of the candidates to begin with. 
Um, at least in my mind, it's real clear that uh, Mayor Keller is is the best qualified. That's number one. Um, and number two is um, he's he, in fact, is is ad addressing some significant issues that are not unique to Albuquerque. Um, you look at any you look at I mean, you look at any of the any most of the major cities mm -hmm. and some cities that I'm familiar with, you know, um, the L.A. area more recently. And um, hey, we got men we got mentioned in that New York Times piece this week about uh, the yeah. rates going up. Albuquerque got a shout out. <laughs> Hate to say it that well, way. The, uh, many cities mm -hmm. are uh, the rates are going up. It's, yeah. it's not something that's just unique to Albuquerque. Um, I mean, it's unfortunate that we're, we're in the mix again, but um, it's not unusual. But how does that play? I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, it's going up everywhere, but folks only care about what's going on up the block, if, if you know what I mean. That's, that's the important part. How do these mayoral candidates address that part of the crime issue? Yeah. Well, I think... Oh, oh, go ahead. Dan, go ahead, please. Dan, you got a thought? No, go ahead. Just, hmm? Yeah, I, I was just going to say, look, I think that the one thing that we're seeing you know, crime, you know, the one thing that we've learned in elections is it, is it always seems to be about it's the economy, stupid, mm -hmm. right? It's the economy, stupid. And, um, you know, the one thing that you got to give Mayor Keller credit for is whether he's right or wrong, he's out there. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't go to an event that you don't bump into him. And I think that in a, in a big town that happens to be a city like Albuquerque, politics is local. And I think that, um, you know, it's clear this whole deal, the whole run in with the count with the city clerk did not help Manny at all. Right. Um, I right. think the addition of Eddie Aragon didn't help Manny at all. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, Keller has done a decent job in the perception of that he's the mayor who's leading. Look, one thing that we found is that regardless of the outcome of what you're doing, it seems like as long as people see your face and hear your voice, they believe that you're leading. And I think that, you know, uh, you know, we can have a long conversation about the murder rates and the way the Albuquerque Police Department is being handled and the homelessness crisis in Albuquerque. I don't think he's done a great job on a lot of those venues. But most people I know, you know, they, they know him. They, mm -hmm. I don't know anybody that doesn't claim to have a relationship or a friendship with Tim Keller or at least know him. Mm -hmm. You know, hey, I met him in a game, saw him here, met him at a restaurant. So, you know, what, what, it's all politics are local. It, I appreciate that point. Uh, Laura, let me go to this um, about Sheriff Gonzalez. We've kind of a little bit light on him in this segment here. I thought his quote that he described the city as, quote, at a crossroads of total anarchy, end quote. Just a little bit out there a little bit. How, how would you express, you know, what, what, how did you take that when you heard that, that bit? Uh, I took that as a as an extreme exaggeration. Mm -hmm. um, one, you know, the kind of framing that he appears to be trying to do is is say, you know, everything is, you know, the sky's falling and I'm the one who's going to protect you from it. Mm -hmm. uh, was was what I think he was trying to convey, but it was it just came across as insulting, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't think that we're in total anarchy. I don't think things are that bad. Yes, we have a, a very serious crime problem. Um, property crime, murder rates, violent crime is up, and, and that should be a concern for everybody. But mm -hmm. I don't And some see other things are down. Some other things are down. Property crime, things like that. Let me spin to Michael real quick on, on the same question. I see you, you may have a thought there. Uh, again, is this the way to win votes? Is, is, is to have people think we're at the brink of some kind of disaster? Is, is that his best card, I, I should ask? I, no, I don't. I think playing to people's fear 
is is not the way to go. I think most people are still pretty rational. I understand that there clearly there's there's some issues, mm-hmm. but the playing to people's fear doesn't doesn't benefits no one, and I don't think in the long run it'll benefit him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think playing to people's fear Real works mm-hmm. only if you've got an answer to it. I think the problem that hurts Manny Gonzalez is with all the stuff that's gone on with police across the country in the news to be a sheriff that was opposed to uh, body armor camera to, to potty cameras doesn't play very well. I mean, right. I think, you know, people people are not anti I, look, I'm not anti-police by any means. Mm-hmm. I'm not a defund the police guy, but I do believe in accountability. And so when you say listen, the city's in chaos, I'm the guy that's going to bring relief, but I wasn't for, you know, bringing accountability. I just don't think it plays well. I I and, and I, I, just, I, gotta, I gotta jump in and nor do the numbers in the county stack up. And he got challenged on that as well when it comes to crime. We have to leave it there. Before we go, I wanted to let you know we'll air the Black Voters Collaborative Forum next week as a New Mexico in Focus special. Early voting will be just kicking off, and for many of our viewers, it'll be a valuable tool as they decide how to vote. Now, we're back in a minute. Talk about how New Mexico students are performing. Today also marks the official start of Balloon Fiesta, although, of course, the big events kick in tomorrow morning. And it's been a long time, it feels like, since we've seen our skies light up with all those beautiful balloons. A lot of COVID restrictions in there. We hope that if you're going out there, you'll stay safe and stay healthy. But uh, speaking of safety, there's been a lot of talk recently about that. Uh, Earlier this summer, there was a deadly balloon crash here in Albuquerque. And recent toxicology reports came out showing that the pilot had Uh, amounts of marijuana and cocaine in his system. So safety in the ballooning community, something that is definitely on the top of mind for a lot of people. And senior producer Matt Grubbs caught up with the founder of Rainbow Riders. If you're even tangentially involved in ballooning here in Albuquerque, you've heard of Rainbow Riders. Scott Appleman is the president and CEO And he spent some time talking with us about how he has been on a campaign for a while now to increase regulations and oversight of the ballooning industry to keep him and all of his pilots safe. He was an expert witness in a 2017 fatal balloon crash in Lockhart, Texas. And that was really the start of his journey towards this realization. Also talk about how they go above and beyond those regulations at Rainbow Riders, which are now in several different states. So here is that interview. Kick it to Matt Grubbs, our senior producer. I'm Matt Grubbs. The Federal Aviation Administration recently revealed that balloon pilot Nick Molesky had cocaine and marijuana in his system at the time of a late June crash in Albuquerque that had Fatal results, four people were killed. Um, What exactly caused that crash isn't yet known, and the National Transportation Safety Board is still investigating, but it has raised questions about what, if any, additional regulations might be needed for balloon pilots. This, of course, ahead of the Albuquerque International Balloon Fiesta. And our guest this week is Scott Appleman, the founder of Rainbow Riders. He has a long history, both with ballooning and with Balloon Fiesta. Scott, thanks for taking a few minutes with us. I appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here. Well, let's start with what's in place for balloon pilots now in terms of regulations, both to get their license and um, ongoing training, uh, pre-flight testing, that sort of thing. Right now, um, the FAA requires 
hours uh, for commercially rated pilots, 35 hours of flight time, um, and abnormally about 20 hours of ground school, um, being signed off by an instructor and going through a written, in-flight and verbal exam in order to receive your final certificate. That's basically the requirements of what is needed um, for a commercial license um, as it stands today. Okay. Uh, in terms of testing that happens, um, is there annual testing? Is there um, drug and alcohol testing? What, what's in place? Um, as it stands today, uh, there is a, a biennial flight review, which means every other year we're supposed to do a, a balloon flight of an hour's worth of ground study and an hour's worth of flying with a pilot of equal endorsement commercial. Um, and in order, uh, and then that would basically be the only requirement for continuing on your commercial license. Now, there's many programs that are available to further your education on that. However, at this point, they're not required. Uh, what do you do at, at Rainbow Riders? What's your preference right now? Well, we, uh, we try to set a new standard and uh, a, a new level for folks to aspire to. Um, we require second-class medicals of all of our pilots. We have random drug and alcohol testing um, of our pilots. We do annual flight reviews. We also do uh, four to six safety seminars slash continuing education uh, that are usually one hour in, um, in length uh, per year in order for us to make sure everybody's staying up on it and staying uh, current. The other item is with Rainbow Riders, you know, I mean, we've got guys that are here flying 250 and 300 days a year. So we're side by side with everybody. And, you know, um, we're very much a family oriented area um, kind of group. And uh, there's a lot of self-policing and making sure that, you know, hey, are you up to this today and that type of stuff. Okay. Uh, and for folks in Albuquerque who might not know, you have uh, outfits in Colorado, Arizona, other places, right? Yeah, uh, the Phoenix uh, Scottsdale Market, Colorado Springs, uh, we operate, and um, we have about 80 employees altogether that operate on a year-round basis in, in those areas. I would imagine they talk to each other after news like this, certainly the crash, but also the report um, about Nick. What are they saying? Is this an opportunity for you to remind them uh, about safety? Oh, without a doubt, it is. You know, I think that there's a bigger message here that the um, the industry is going to feel a, a brunt on, you know, um, when uh, the crash in Lockhart took place, you know, I was an expert witness at that. And being part of his expert witness program, you see all the details, all the evidence, photographs, reports, everything. When I came back from that experience and going through the investigation, um, that was the, the day that I came back, things changed at Rainbow Riders. Um, as far as requirements and putting in new standards for our guys and um, our team here. We um, have tried at a national level to get folks to want to participate in a program like this, um, but we didn't get a lot of forward moment uh, with that. Uh, so essentially it really came down to, um, I'm going to take care of, and our team is going to take care of ourselves and our families and do the best that we can to represent hot air ballooning at a commercial level um, with Rainbow Riders. And you were talking about the 2016, I believe it was, fatal crash in, in Lockhart, Texas. Um, 
where a, a large balloon ran into some some power lines, I believe it was. Um, you talked, I, I think at that time, I mean, you you obviously mentioned that things changed at, at Rainbow Riders, but you talked about the idea of, um, of a national set of regulations. Is this kind of the idea of we need to regulate ourselves before uh, someone else does? Oh, without a doubt. Uh, you know, the FAA, um, in my opinion, is without a doubt understaffed for all the stuff that's flying around in the air. You know, there's a couple thousand safety inspectors out there to take care of all the jets, the drones, the balloons, the helicopters, the small aircraft. So that's a huge undertaking. In order for them to be able to do that, um, you know, they would need a lot more manpower. Um, I will say that uh, in aviation, a lot of associations have their own self-policing pro processes. And it's you know definitely that time where ballooning needs to do it. In my opinion, actually, it's a little bit past that time. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I want to hope that people are willing to embrace the change and um, realize that it is coming. And just because it was a way in the past doesn't mean it's the way it's gonna be in the future. The, um, the balloon community, you know, it started off, obviously, um, Balloon Fiesta started off, you know, kind of in a mall parking lot, a very casual sort of thing. Has it been resistant to this sort of change of formalizing regulations? I wouldn't say that it's been resistant to it. You know, I think that um, the industry itself needs to be able to make the investment in its sustainability um, by bring, bringing in new standards and expectations. Um, that um, has room for improvement at this particular point. Um, I will say that, you know, ballooning and the, like the, the ride aspect and the sightseeing aspect has become that bucket list item. There's a lot more folks that want to do it. Therefore, there's a lot more folks that are um, doing it. You know, statistically speaking, hot air ballooning is still way safer than driving in your car. Okay, let's get that straight. The difference here is that when, um, you know, in these past two occurrences, you know, they're very tragic. And, you know, it's um, one of those things that is very visual. And I think that that carries on, especially in our world of social media and cameras and all that type of stuff. So, you know, there's a lot of things that in life have changed. Uh, technology, the resources, uh, the balloon industry needs to understand that that is out there and we need to do everything that we can to make sure that we're being the most good representatives and holding up the highest standards. You brought up a good point. Uh, I don't know that there's anyone who saw Adolphe Pierre-Louis's photograph in the journal of, of that crash and the envelope deflated and, and the basket descending and thought, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't imagine that. What has been your feedback from passengers, from prospective passengers uh, since the June accident and, and maybe since last week? You know, to be honest with you, um, I mean, obviously, there's uh, just there's there's the sorrow that goes with a situation like this, and, and we're very sympathetic to all the people involved. Um, you know, if indeed, and realizing that the report stuff that we have out right now is one aspect of it, so I don't think that there's conclusive evidence at this point to say this was definitely it. Um, and also there's now question being drawn as to whether the validation of those testing. I'm not here to talk about that, nor do I have that type of uh, ability, but I'll say that 
what we do is we just remind people of what we do and how we offer and our investment in safety. Um, we want to talk about our strengths, not other bad situations or negative situations, and just reassure people that we're doing everything we can to manage all the risk for their enjoyment for a hot air balloon ride on the ground before the flight. That comes down to the personnel, the equipment, the pre-flight uh, pre planning, and our just 24-7 approach to all of our pilots that are you know full-time, year-round, always watching the weather and the data and all that type of stuff. Scott, um, in just the few seconds that we have left here, uh, ahead of potential regulation, are you going to sort of reach out to the ballooning community, the professional ballooning community, uh, and make some of those suggestions that you made back in 2016, 2017 uh, after Lockhart? Um, I will say that uh, I have been. Um, I will continue to do that um, at this Fiesta. You know, we have 45 professional ride operators that will be that are pilots and ride operations around the company country that'll be here working with rainbow riders at the balloon fiesta we will actively be getting this message out we have every year um they're all in that's why they're here with rainbow riders they 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 embrace the approach that we do um so we're going to continue uh doing what we're doing trying to promote the good word. And also the simple fact is that everybody knows that there's pending change that will come. To what extent is yet to be seen? Um, the government is a big wheel to turn. We'll see how and what comes out. Scott Appleman, a sad subject, uh, a tough subject, but we appreciate you being willing to talk about it, especially uh, going into your busy time of the year. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Chances are somewhere in your Twitter feed or your news feed this week, you heard about the MacArthur Foundation Fellows, the Genius Grant uh, grantees that were announced. These are people doing incredibly important work and really uh, thought leaders across the country. And uh, one of those uh, grantees and those fellows is Monica Munoz Martinez. She is a history professor at the University of Texas who... Her research specializes in lost or secret histories, especially revolving around the U.S.-Mexico border, something that is obviously impactful here in New Mexico. So we wanted to find out a little more about what this grant will mean to her and why those hidden histories are so important and relevant even today. So here now, correspondent Russell Contreras. We're pleased to have Monica Munoz Martinez, a recent winner, uh, our recent recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant. Uh, Monica is somebody that I've written about extensively and her work on violence and racial violence in the Southwest. And we are honored to have her here on New Mexico in Focus. Monica, it's great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Russell. It's always glad to be in conversation. It's always good to be in conversation. So to start off, um, you and I have had a lot of conversations about racial violence in the American Southwest, but how does this MacArthur Genius Grant change your research and change the work? Does it help? Does it put pressure on you? How are you changing? Oh, it absolutely helps. It helps 110%. I mean, just from the 
from the first phone call, from the phone call, uh, letting me know about the award, the gravity of the possibilities of what this grant could do was, was tremendous. They, you know, in giving me the information about the award and, and the support, um, they also read a bio about my work. And what was so moving to me was, was that they had read my research, that they had uh, studied the public projects and what they were the what what I kept hearing was them invoking the importance of recovering histories that have been disavowed, honoring the stories of people whose whose histories have been erased, or worse, that cases of, of violence, people who suffered from violence, um, who were criminalized in the aftermath. And so to know that the foundation was 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 reading this work, but also hearing those stories and their importance to me was incredibly moving. Um, and motivating to, to keep doing the work of recovering these histories and, and making them public because people have been trying to do this work to make it public for generations. And to now know that they, that they too have the support of the MacArthur is, is tremendous. Before we get deep into your work, let's talk about history and why that's important in 2021. Currently around the country, there is a backlash on critical race theory and studying the history of people of color that is critical to the romantic foundation of this country. Why is history important today in 2021? And why should we be resilient in making sure that we have an accurate portrayal of the history of this country? Well, historians like to say, you have to learn history so that you don't repeat it. You don't repeat the worst parts of history. And as a historian of race and a historian of racial violence in the United States, it's been deeply troubling to see so many mistakes repeated, especially when we think about the history of racial violence on the US-Mexico border, about the long history of anti-immigrant sentiment, of nativism and men anti-Mexican sentiment. A hundred years ago, that led to racial violence, but it also led to racism and informing and shaping immigration laws that have impacted people for, for over a century. And so it's important to learn histories, um, especially in the early 20th century, when we think about a moment of, of laws being passed to intentionally restrict the rights of racial and ethnic minorities in the United States. The early 20th century, the Jim Crow era of the United States helps to teach us about how power works actually and, and worked efficiently to restrict people's rights. We are living in another moment, unfortunately, where we see active efforts to restrict people's voting rights, to restrict uh, reproductive rights and, and also to restrict the rights of migrants and asylum seekers. And so this is an important moment for us to learn from history and to learn from people who called for social justice and organized to insist they had civil rights and that they should be respected. Um, because those to me are the most inspiring stories that can help propel us forward to keep calling for a more inclusive democracy. Why is there such a negative reaction when you bring up the history of racial violence in the United States, and it includes Latinos. What's the resistance to that? Well, I think that they're just, it's an example that there hasn't been enough resources um, by universities, by libraries, by, by museums, invested in explaining to people how, how widespread racism and white supremacy is in the United States, and to, for, for there to be a public understanding of um, 
of the devastating effects for different racial and ethnic groups. And so the studying Texas for me and the Southwest is particularly important because it helps us to, to understand how the histories of conquest, of genocidal violence against indigenous people and of the history of slavery all intersect in a place like Texas. And so for me, it's important for people to remember that you can't understand the history of racist violence um, in, in Texas uh, along racial lines. Uh, one of the examples that I give is a Texas Ranger actually who was the captain of the company uh, that, that uh, organized the Bodmin massacre. His name was James Monroe Fox. Before he was a Texas Ranger who was policing in West Texas, he was photographed as a Texas Ranger in South Texas, one of the most iconic photographs of anti-Mexican violence of Texas Rangers on horseback with ropes tied around dead Mexican bodies, identified in the photograph only at derogatorily as Mexican bandits. Um, but before he was in West Texas and then in South Texas, uh, policing Mexicans with violence, um, committing these acts of brutality. He was a, a, a law enforcement agent in Austin, Texas. And one of the earliest records that we have of him in the historical archive is of him uh, shooting a prisoner, an African-American prisoner in Austin in 1902. And so that's just one example that we are recovering in, in a recovery effort to record cases of racist violence in Texas that, that remind us that these histories are inter, um, interconnected. Uh, 1919 is another important year where there's an investigation to the Texas Rangers into their abuse that is led by Jose Ticanales, who is a state representative from South Texas, and he brings a whole set of charges of Texas Rangers committing abuse, extra legal violence against Mexican Americans, but also against African Americans. And despite two weeks of extensive testimony and evidence being submitted, the this uh, congressional committee decided not to bring charges against individual Texas Rangers and also didn't condemn state leadership for calling for violent policing. Swiftly after that hearing ends in 1919, the governor calls on the Texas Rangers to investigate NAACP chapters in the state and to shut them down. And so again, you know, when, when people have responses to why, uh, you know, um, uh, are critical of, of efforts to recover histories of other racial and ethnic groups, I say, look, we are at a loss if we don't see how these are interconnected. Um, and, and again, especially because so much of the anti-Mexican violence was state sanctioned, was extra legal violence by police. Those are especially important cases to be learning from today when we are again confronting police brutality by, by local law enforcement, but also by border patrol officers. In our final 30 seconds there, we recently had the images of the Border Patrol on horseback uh, herding Haitian immigrants. A lot of folks saw this and were reminded of slavery, the images of slavery. Yes, this, yes, the Border Patrol did not use whips, they used reins for the herding. And there was a lot of debate about the slavery images, but not a lot of discussion about the anti-border violence that you were talking about. Why do we still not have that in our narrative today? I think it's because most people just don't know the history. We, we, we don't know also the history of policing on the border. And so, you know, what's, what that, what the phenomenon of, of, of people uh, looking at that photograph and being horrified tells us is, is that some people did see it and say, this reminds us, this should remind us of slave patrols. Other people saw it said, this should remind us of the Jim Crow South. Um, for people from the Southwest, 
they immediately thought about the Texas Rangers on the Texas border. And so what all of that tells me is that we have a whole set of histories of racist violence in the United States that as a public, we have not confronted. But for people who remember those histories and um, who are troubled by them, these displays of police brutality today um, resurface all of those unresolved um, histories. And so we have a lot of work to do as a, as a nation to confront our histories of racist violence, but to, to learn about all of them. And I think that it's historians' responsibility to, to, to bring these histories to light so that we do make those connections and we can find solutions. Monica Munoz, recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grants. Mucho felicidades, and we look forward to seeing where your work goes from here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So many fascinating stories that Monica Munoz Martinez had to share with Russell Contreras. We just didn't have time for all of it in the show, but luckily here, not a problem. So we want to bring you some more of that interview and some more of those hidden histories that she talked about uh, so much already. Uh, Really important for us to keep in mind in our current political environment. Now, in your book, The Injustice Never Leaves You, you talked about um, Puerto Nevada, Texas, and an incident there with the Texas Rangers and the U.S. military. Tell us real quickly what happened and what was the result. The Boivinite massacre took place in January 1918. It's a devastating case of extra-legal violence. Most people, when they think about racial violence in the United States, they tend to think about lynchings of African-Americans, and they tend to think about violence in the South. This is an example of racist violence by um, Texas Rangers, the state police in Texas, um, in, in the early 20th century in 1918. It's an example of Texas Rangers and U.S. soldiers Um, in West Texas, visiting an isolated ranching community, waking the families up in the middle of the night and separating 15 men and boys from their loved ones. Um, They were taken into Texas Ranger custody and without due process, without investigations, they were massacred by the Texas Rangers. And so this is a, a, a devastating example, not only because of the 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 gross violence, but also because despite the witnesses, the the families themselves, the survivors, or the U.S. soldiers that witnessed this act, there were no prosecutions. And so it's an example of where where you see a state investigating the the event, uh, the U.S. government investigating the event, the Mexican government investigating the event because the survivors called for justice. Um, And despite all of the evidence that was, was, was Uh, revealed um, that this was a a massacre by the Texas Rangers, there were no prosecutions. And so this is one of those examples of 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 an example of racist violence that that most people don't know happened, um, but it has shaped our understanding of places of of the border. These were Mexican nationals in a a context when anybody who looked Mexican was being what we would call today racially profiled as a threat, as as un-American, and 
And, and so we have to learn about the consequences of, of racist rhetoric and how it can lead to violence. Um, this is also the Bodhmid massacre did come to more popular attention in the aftermath of the El Paso shooting um, in 2019, because people were learning you know, about anti-Latinx violence and how it has persisted. And, and actually over the past few years, how it has been increasing, anti-Latinx hate crimes have been increasing. But Americans didn't really know even the history of Latinos in the United States, much less the history of anti-Latinx or anti-Mexican violence. And so it takes people really trying to, to learn um, just basic information about the history of the border, the history of Mexican-Americans in places like West Texas, to be able to understand how it is that, that such an injustice could happen um, with, with complete impunity. Just ran out of time on the show with all this other great content to uh, check in one more time with the line panel. So we'll do that here. I had a great conversation about especially recent reporting around about how folks are getting around the eviction moratorium. This is a story we've been following very closely in the pandemic, and we know we are headed towards a real serious problem, potential crisis if we can't figure out how to do some of this, you're going to hear the line panelists talk about federal assistance and how it's available, but maybe not enough, hard to get to. We certainly haven't spent as much of that as we know there is need. All this also comes as the housing market is super crunched here, especially in Albuquerque. Rental prices are going up, uh, mortgages, we know people are getting top dollar for their houses, really a burden and a hardship on a lot of hardworking folks who are being priced out of the market. So here again, host Gene Grant. We continue our coverage of the housing crisis now, following up on work by Patrick Lohman at the news source, at the news outlet rather, Source New Mexico. He's been focused on the most vulnerable, like people living in extended stay motels where some landlords effectively bully them out of their rooms and often a legal move or people who can't find a landlord who will accept Section 8 housing vouchers that pay a large chunk of the rent for some low-income earners. Hey, Michael, I'm always interested in the public health angle for issues like this. It's more than just the people experiencing homelessness or unstable housing situations who are affected, isn't it? Well, and, and, and a lot of the research really clearly, as we've had previous conversations about this, that housing is really the most, one of the most critical elements uh, for anybody's uh, long-term or short-term as well as long-term stability. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, and I think it, most of us can appreciate the fact that if we if we were in other in those shoes, we we would be challenged in so many ways. Yep. So yeah, it's it's it's. I mean, it's critical and it's really um, again, it's a it's more, it's a systems issue across the board with COVID mm -hmm. and. Uh, homelessness, homelessness and crime and a whole host of other issues, including domestic violence. Right. Hey, Michael, you know, a lot of protests out there. People believe housing is a right. Right. And is that the way you see it as well? And how do if, if that's the foundational place we're coming from, how do we design programs that fit that idea? Well, I think that um, at this point in time, I, there, there are many Again, Albuquerque is not the only one dealing with this issue. It's a national issue. Right. You look at the rate of homelessness in L.A. County, and um, and I think everyone is struggling to really try and figure out what is the best remedy. And to tell you the truth, at this point, I, I really can't offer a, a, a solution. I wish I could. I, it wouldn't be an issue, I guess, if I could. Mm -hmm. I hear that. Um, 
Daniel, it feels to me like the problem is just a wave beginning to crest when you look about it, look at it rather. New Mexico hasn't done a great job of figuring out how to address the homeless crisis. Are we in trouble here on this issue? Yeah, I mean, I think we're in trouble in Albuquerque. I don't think all of New Mexico is in trouble. Okay. Um, you know, we, we seem to be a situation, obviously, we, we, you know, we've talked this about this ad nauseum on the show. I mean, when there seems to be, there seems to be an inordinate amount of mental health issues combined with homelessness in Albuquerque right. compared to most other cities across the country. And uh, part of that, I think, stems from all the services are here. So when something happens in any of the outlying communities, there seems to be a van that bring you to Albuquerque and you're left. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so I do think it's a problem in Albuquerque. Uh, and is going to continue to grow. I mean, as you drive around Albuquerque, we are becoming more and more. I mean, these tent cities are popping up everywhere. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then you you add to that, you know, right now that I, I went to a friend, had a fundraiser for an organization that was trying to uh, raise money to build homes, uh, to build a, kind of an apartment complex. You know, and then the, you know, the, then all of a sudden we get this uh, real estate boom and now you can't afford to buy land. Right. right? I mean, you can't, you can't there afford you to buy land to build a homeless hotel for people now. So, you know, it's six of one half a dozen of another. But if we don't figure out a way, we're about to really wake up in the next three or four months. You know, it's one thing to worry about it when it's 65 or 70 degrees at night. It's another thing to discuss this when it's 18 degrees at night. And uh, I think we're going to have some some horrific news in the next few months in Albuquerque if we don't get in front of this. Laura, over at Source New Mexico, again, Patrick Lohman points out that unlike New Mexico, most states don't let landlords turn down renters with Section 8 vouchers, veteran benefits, that sort of assistance. Is it time for the law to change or does that provision serve an important protection for landlords? I think it's time that that, that rule be changed, that that law change, really, mm -hmm. because um, if you're, you know, if these landlords are able to turn down the federal assistance that's out there for for the landlords for you know to deal with this issue mm -hmm. as a result of the pandemic, they're exacerbating the homelessness problem. They're they're pricing people out of the market. You're creating a, a bigger problem, and and I think it's a preventive measure that the legislature could take by changing that law. Um, I just I'm really shocked and upset that so many so much money is being left on the table in terms right. of federal assistance mm -hmm. um, and the only option is going to be that they convert that into rental assistance to the tenants um, but ultimately you know i mean i'm going th through something like this because my sister who's um disabled and you know on a fixed income just had her rent increased 110 dollars a yeah. month mm -hmm. and she i mean She's on a fixed income, so luckily, you know, I, I'm able to help her. But a lot of people don't have that situation, and so, you know, I mean, it's it's just unconscionable. KOB TV really. is reporting that rents in Albuquerque have increased 17 percent over the last year. That is a that's a huge jump. You're talking about rental income, and Michael, let me swing to you on this. You know, vouchers, assistant checks. You know, under this idea of, of assistance, is this just code for poor people, so to speak, and can lead to discrimination? When they when folks walk in the door with these kind of uh, voucherous uh, voucher help, oh well, I th I think discrimination has been with us for a long time and hasn't 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 magically disappeared for for me for many communities, mm -hmm. um, and and again as you were pointing out, you know the the housing I mean the rental has increased seventy percent and housing's gone up twelve percent, so that also exacerbates exacerbates the issue mm -hmm. along with the rental properties.
Daniel, there are emergency programs, emergency assistance programs from the pandemic, but just a quarter of it has been handed out. How, how, do, we, how do we get the word out more? What, what has to happen to get this money moving into the people's hands that really yeah, need it? It's not, it's, it's not just that we got to get the word out. It's something that people are forgetting. Look, I, I understand Laura's situation and feel for her sister's situation. And I think that, you know, a lot of these situations these one-off situations we should be having conversations about, but we got to remember a lot of this federal assistance doesn't pay the rent. It pays part of the rent. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so, you know, sometimes you got folks that are not, you know, folks that I've known that are landlords are saying, Hey, hold on a second. You know, yeah, the federal government wants to give me a check for X dollars, but the rental agreement they assigned for is Y dollars. And the, and the, the individual is not coming up with their portion of that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've got to figure out a way because, you know, the answer can't be telling every private business and everything we do, you've got to, you got to accept this. You got to do this. Um, you would think that there would be opportunities for others to open up some businesses out there. Look, we got the New Mexico Mortgage Finance Authority down the road here that is, that gives out no interest loans, grants to help build these, uh, facilities to help build uh, home homes and uh, uh, apartments for low-income individuals. You know, we just got to get to those folks and get working with them to get it understood. The, the, the big disconnect, though, from what I hear on a lot of the folks that own property, uh, it's amazing because I got folks that own property, friends of mine that own tons of homes, mm -hmm. and they're like, look, you know, one of the situations they've got is they got a lot of people that want to rent from them. But when they do the background check and they find out that they've been evicted from the last three places and they yep. got three judgments on them and the house was condemned, they're like, look, I I can't I can't do this regardless mm -hmm. of what the federal government pays. So there's got to be some education component. We've got to figure out a way to educate folks on what it means to be a good tenant. But we also have to keep in mind that there's folks out there that we have to help. Right. I mean, Laura's sister's situation. I mean, what are you going to tell that young lady? Go right. go find another hundred ten dollars a month. I right. mean. It's impossible, mm -hmm. and we got we got to figure out a way to solve this. Good points, Dan. We're out of time. Thanks to our panelists, and we'll make sure to link those, those articles on our website. That is NewMexicoInFocus.org. If you don't already know, you should pay attention to our Facebook page on Wednesdays around lunchtime. That's when host Gene Grant does our Facebook Lives. Uh, which are news-making interviews or very timely interviews, things going on. This week, a fascinating discussion about a story you may or may not be aware of, but it's hugely important potentially to New Mexico as IATSE, which is the union that represents a lot of the people in the film industry, are uh, voting starting this weekend on whether or not to strike over work conditions. And again, if that strike happens... That will put a halt to one of the industries that's really doing well here in New Mexico. And again, it's all about the conditions that workers face in making all this content that we all love to consume. So it's a sticky situation, and we wanted to reach out to somebody who's done some great reporting on this uh, for the Santa Fe Reporter and uh, get the lowdown on what exactly the fight is over and what happens from here. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate it. Hey, folks, welcome. A little bit late here. Four minutes past the hour of noon on Wednesday, but we're ready for another Facebook Live. We're going to talk about filmmaking here in New Mexico and nationwide, but primarily here in New Mexico. There is an upcoming strike authorization vote you might have heard of. Um, maybe not. We're here with Riley Gardner, who is the arts one of the arts reporters for the Santa Fe Reporter. We appreciate his time and 
Uh, the work on this you put in, Riley, really appreciate it. Just to set the folks up a little bit, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, or IATSE, as we're going to refer to them here in a quick second, uh, called for a strike vote authorization for uh, the first, which is this coming, which is Friday. We should know the results of this on the fourth. And so, Riley, uh, I like your piece in the reporter last week on this. It was pretty terrific. There are implications for New Mexico, aren't there? There are kind of more than a few implications for New Mexico in this, actually. Um, the local IATSE 480 here, that is our regional coverage of, of the union, they cover about 1,600 union members and, um, you know, people on the wait list, union eligible people. There's a lot of people there. Um, you know, we have tens of thousands of people working in the industry here, and this could, in theory, um, put a halt to essentially all non-union productions, or I'm sorry, excuse me, all union productions and put a huge handicap on non-union production. So it is very serious. And, you know, just um, for clarifications, I mean, this past year alone, $624 million have been spent by the film industry here in New Mexico, which is the largest we've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And essentially we could see either a drastic massive cut into that, or we could see it almost freeze entirely. That's an interesting point right there. We'll come back to that in a second. What's the main bone of contention here for the IOTC folks? Why even have we gotten this close to even call for a strike authorization vote? Well, you know, it's interesting because it hasn't ever actually happened before in IOTC's history. Um, I like to think of it from what I'm getting from people I'm talking to is primarily this is part of the larger labor revolution that we're seeing post-COVID. Right. Um, if anyone out there who is watching or listening knows anything about the film industry, myself included, who used to work in the film industry, it is brutal. It is a minimum 12 hour days, you know, sometimes five to six days a week. Um, it's hard. And what we're seeing right now is essentially a massive, massive backlog of projects that have not been produced because of the pandemic when everything was shut down. That's either local projects here in New Mexico or that's nationwide or even international. And as a result of that, producers are snapping to try to get everything going as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And in IOTC's view, the work conditions have um, become pretty much intolerable. They're working almost 16 hour days, upwards of six days a week, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And money is short pretty much everywhere. Um, one of the main bones of contention too is um, this idea of new media. And essentially what that means is most of the streaming services, so things like Netflix and whatnot, are basically um, allowed via a 2009 agreement that IOTC made with these companies to pay their workers lower rates. So in some cases, you might be making upwards to $40, $50 an hour. And if you jump to a Netflix project, you could be making 15. Mm -hmm. And the workers don't have any say in it. They have no say in it. And then at the same time, health care programs are being cut, pension programs are being cut, qualification days are being raised. Uh, they're basically um, being told that all of their complaints, everything that they have that they think is wrong has been addressed and that they need to bucker up like the big old producers and they need to start sacrificing too. Mm -hmm. And they're not about that. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Um, you know, it, 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 I'm going to post or maybe it's posted already. We've got uh, this was the infamous documentary some years ago by the infamous Haskell Wexler, who passed away in 2015, called Who Needs Sleep? And it's about this very issue. He went around interviewing lots of folks on film sets about the outrageous hours they work. And just put a little context on this. Uh, there was an infamous case back when Longmire was filming here, wasn't there, when somebody yeah. passed away after working an extraordinary amount of hours and falling asleep behind the wheel, which is very common in film world. 
Yeah. Yeah, it, it is not uncommon to see these. And it's not just onset accidents necessarily. You see these things, um, you know, reverberating in film workers' personal lives. They have very high rates of health issues. They have very high rates of divorce. They have just general dissatisfaction. And frankly, getting out of the industry is a very mm -hmm. difficult thing to do, especially when you've made that your skill set for so long. That's and for most of these people, they feel, they feel frankly trapped. They feel like they cannot necessarily get out. They feel like in many cases, they don't have any bargaining rights. And now we're seeing basically this larger, like I said, worker revolution starting to finally come to the film industry. I mean, these people are working like pre-Henry Ford hours and it's like ridiculous. <laughs> I like the way you put that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Watch that doc. It really explained a lot. Let me circle back on something really important. There's another side of this, of course, uh, from my auntie, and that is AMPTP. That is the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. Those are the folks who announced this past Monday or Monday this week. It does not intend to make any counteroffer to the IATSE's most recent proposal. It, it, this is an opinion question, certainly, but as I read a lot of the LA publications and different things, there's not the expectation that folks would really honestly hit the bricks on this, but it is a sign that folks are willing to dig in their heels right up into the, the brink, so to speak, to get something changed in that manner you're talking about in a new way of kind of looking at life. Is that a fair way to kind of put this whole thing? I think that would be a fair way to put it. I think this is a larger almost example of the film culture in and of itself is the fact that you see essentially these disconnected high-level producers and executives who truly believing that they are sacrificing and they we should make it clear they are struggling financially there is a lot of like you know holes that with COVID has caused um, and they are struggling and things like you know contributions from employers or they're, they're sort of looking around to see where the money is coming from but the fact that they are basically tossing aside any worker concerns is is very problematic and it is very part of th this larger issue of, you know, digging their heels into these things, as you said. And, um, you know, this is a good point to point out that on this Friday, October 1st, there will be a strike authorization vote. And just so everyone knows, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's gonna go to the picket lines immediately. Um, it basically gives the last biggest bargaining chip that IATSE has against these people. Mm -hmm. And um, the AMPTP, they are not necessarily um, people in boardrooms. They're more like lawyers. They, they sort of negotiate on behalf of these organizations. And mm -hmm. essentially, if they dig their heels in and they say, no, we're not going to give you better working conditions. You're not going to get that. This is part of how it is. This is part of how it's always been. Um, it's very likely that we are going to see uh, this strike probably within the next few weeks. Mm -hmm. Let me read you a quote here from IATSE as we're mm -hmm. going around, uh, you know, uh, jumbles of uh, letters here uh, about the AMPT's position, AMPTP's position here. It is incomprehensible that the AMPTP, an ensemble that includes media mega corporations collectively worth trillions of dollars, claims it cannot provide behind the scenes crews with the basic human necessities like adequate sleep, meal breaks and living wages. Worse, management does not appear to even recognize our core issues as problems that exist in the first place. It sounds like these folks are very far away from each other. Am, am I wrong here? I mean, that's that's pretty cold. You're not wrong. And, and like I said, this is pretty much essentially the film culture. This is how the entire production part of the industry has been operating, which is there has been a separation between below the line and above the line crew for a long time. Mm -hmm. And especially just essential quality of work. I mean, workers talk about 
They feel like they are under a culture of intimidation all the time. They feel like they are threatened with re replacement constantly. They feel, in some cases, I've even heard from workers that they feel like they're being emotionally abused wow. consistently. And again, you can't get out of this industry like that. And they are so far away because frankly, it's so difficult. These are two completely different views of the world that you see between IOTC and between high-level studio executives. So you can imagine, um, it seems, you know, this is an opinion, but it seems like there is not going to be an agreement thus far. There hasn't been much in the way of any progress at all. Mm -hmm. Interesting points there. Uh, let's talk about who this involved when we mention above the line and below the line. Mm -hmm. uh, please do explain to the folks who makes up below the line people and who this would primarily affect. Right. Uh, so above the line, people are um, essentially the more shiny, sparkly people, I like to call them. They are the people who win the Oscars. They're the writers, the editors, the directors, the producers, um, all of these people who basically get what's called top billing, which basically means your name is first on the credits, might be on the movie poster. Um, below the line is essentially it's everyone else. It's the prop makers. It's the teamsters. It's the people who drive the trucks. It's, you know, the editing assistants. Um, all these people who uh, basically make everything run. They are the gears. They're the oil. They are everything. Mm -hmm. And um, they make the vast majority of the film industry they have since the very, very beginning. Um, and obviously, film crews cannot operate without these people. They are essential. Absolutely. And if you've never seen it, folks done, you know, yourselves personally, a lot of folks around here are connected to the film business. But I think Riley makes a very good point here. There are folks behind the scenes, you would not imagine how hard they're working, you know, set dressers, prop masters, grips, accountants. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a whole lot of different people. I had a good conversation last night with Liz Pecos. Of course, you uh, quoted her in your piece. She's president of the local IATC 480 that you mentioned. And she made a very interesting point. I was relating to her that uh, quite a number of years ago, I happened, I got lucky to be an extra on The Longest Yard that uh, filmed, of course, at the old Santa Fe Penitentiary. And then I did about three or four weeks out in Los Angeles as well for the show. It was very, it was very revealing to be on a film set that many days in a row. Because once the bloom comes off the rose, you really get to look around and see how hard these people are working. And I remember thinking, this doesn't look right. <laughs> Something just seemed way, way off in the amount of hours. And let me go back to Liz and something she mentioned is, for example, there are folks that have to come in earlier than the call time, so to speak, to set things up, meaning makeup people. If there's a 5 a.m. call that we had for extras to be in makeup, well, they got to be there 90 minutes to two hours ahead of that. And then sometimes for people handling uh, costuming, they have to stay behind maybe two or three hours after the filming is done for the day. So these people are working 14, 15, 16, 19 hours a day. And I remember looking in some of their eyes like, this just doesn't look right, man. I mean, but here's the other side. Here's why I set this up. They sure love that overtime money, though, bro, when you talk to them. And you talk to a lot of these L.A. guys, and they say that is part of the problem that this younger folks are not having. That it's not just about piling up money, it's about, you know, quality of your life. And that's where the collision is here, even inside the IOTC thing. Long, long explanation, but I think you know where I'm going there. It's, it's very, very complicated on an individual basis, isn't it? it? It very much is. I mean, I mean, Liz is very much right about that. And I remember even from my own experience, the locations department from so the productions I've been on had been there the longest. They have to be there even before the people you mentioned. Yes. get everything set up and then stay back and 
you know, basically tear down the set or keep it going. Those people work 18 hour days sometimes. And yes, it is, it is part of a, this is going to sound a little bit dramatic, but it is part of more of a reawakening that we're having. Like we talked about post COVID. Um, It is this, this thing with the work-life balance. I mean, the film industry operated on what was called the 12 on 12 off, meaning you work 12 hours, you're off 12 hours. But really, if you think about it and you add everything in there, people are really only spending, you know, roughly two to three hours a day with their family, with the people that they care about. And people want to be with their family. They want to do the things they care about. They don't want to dedicate the every last minute that they have to work, even if it's in an industry that they overwhelmingly love. They they just can't do it. That's right. The blue, let's put it this way. A friend of mine uh, said this brilliantly. The boomer rose has fallen off. The pebble has fallen (laughs) off the rose. You know, younger people are not having that. Oh, you must be like this to to, to stay in this industry. You got to be tough. You got to be, you know, no one's having that anymore, you know, because there's a price for that. It's very interesting. Uh, Again, in something uh, Riley mentioned a second ago, 82 film projects and 159 television projects filmed in New Mexico during the 2021 fiscal year. And that's data from the film office. And I mean, again, the ramifications of that, Riley, let's talk about outside people who work in the industry. There are folks who make money from the industry, props, all that kind of stuff. What's the, what's the rolling ramification for those folks across New Mexico if, in fact, this strike authorization vote comes and folks do vote to strike? Well, it can go, it really can go in any direction because thankfully a lot of these local businesses, um, so things like local grip houses and local studios and things like that, they they do have connections to some non-union projects that can sometimes work with local municipalities and things like that. Um, so th- there are options there, but it still can very, very much hurt. Um, you know, sometimes in some cases that's still using 50% of your bottom line throughout a year, especially if you have a major production that was going to give you the vast majority of your income for a year or more, or, you know, you needed to invest in some new equipment and things like that. And even these far off adjacent businesses. So, uh, you know, businesses that help in, like we were talking about costumes or props or things like that. A lot of um, up here in Santa Fe, things like old antique houses and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they suffer the ramifications from this. They certainly lose a lot of that wholesale business. Um, so the reality is, is we don't entirely know um, mm-hmm. how bad it can be, but we know it's going to hurt. And that's the biggest thing there. Good point there. Um, real quick, and we'll now you're going to get back to, uh, to your job there. And your job's not talking to me. Um, the nuts and bolts of it is the 75% approval must happen for the strike authorization vote inside these individual IOTC chapters. Any sense now where New Mexico's 480 is right now? Do you think that 75% threshold is reasonable, doable? You know, what, I don't know how you'd put it, but what's your sense of it, what you're hearing? Well, uh, my understanding is that 480 doesn't have to vote on the initial strike strike authorization. That's going to be um, given to a few locales over in the California, Los Angeles region. I see. Um, and then when that goes into the larger um, vote, that I think they will be involved there. But um, this is, again, this is going to be from my experience. It seems like um, it's going to be ready to go. I mean, the last person I talked to on a film set just for a piece was saying that it's like, it feels like it's happening. The fires are burning. Mm-hmm. It is, they, they're calling it the most unified they have felt in their entire careers in many cases. And um, I, I think, you know, it's conjecture on my part, but it looks like it is heading that way. Isn't that something? We'll have to see, yeah. but there are serious implications for New Mexico guys. There's no doubt about that. 
Hey, Riley, thank you so much from Santa Fe Reporter. We really appreciate your time. Um, yeah. When things maybe change a little bit, we'll check in with you down the road. Um, who knows what's going to happen, but we have the first we know for sure uh, yeah. as a date to watch. And we'll be watching for your byline and the reporter to check up on all that, too. So really appreciate that. Guys, we will see you Friday night at 7 o'clock on Channel 5.1 as usual. If you have any thoughts about this, if you are an IOTC 480 member, love to hear your thoughts uh, below. Oh, by the way, Riley, I should ask you. Yeah. Do I, uh, is there, I heard there's an Instagram out there where or IOTC folks are posting horror stories about this. Do I have that right? You are correct. That's actually what really kicked off a lot of this. Um, my, I believe it's IA underscore stories. Um, you can check it out. That essentially shares um, upwards of thousands and thousands of people's accounts. Um, it's all personal and it is a very, very, very good indicator of why people are feeling this way. Uh, so if you get a yeah, if you guys get a chance to check it out, you should really check it out and see what film people are really dealing with on their day to day. All over it. And again, I'll mention again that Haskell Wexler film from uh, many years ago, Who Needs Sleep? We're going to have down below in the thread uh, uh, the link as well. I very much encourage that uh, watching that as well. It gives you a real sense of what these folks are going through. So anyway, thank you, Riley. Really appreciate your help. And best of to Julianne, of course. She's one of our faves on New Mexico in Focus. So give her a big hello as well. Indeed, I will. Thank you so Thanks. much. Appreciate it. Thanks, folks. We'll see you Friday night. And we'll see you next Wednesday as well. Take care. That'll do it for this episode of New Mexico and Focus, the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald. Got a lot more great stuff from the show as well as some extras in our next episode. Want to make you aware of that so you tune in and listen. We'll be talking more with the line panelists about word that uh, standardized test results for students across New Mexico not going to be released this year. Of course, that's because of covid but uh, we know that students are falling behind and it's hard to address exactly how far behind or what to do about it without those scores. So we'll be talking about that. Also, speaking of the line, Dee Dee Feldman, one of our line regulars and a former state senator, she has a new memoir out now. It's called 10 More Doors, talking about the grueling process as a candidate of knocking on doors, trying to earn votes. Uh, Dee Dee has a lifetime of experience in this and some great memories and thoughts she's going to share with us. We encourage you to tune in for that one. Also, environmental reporter Laura Paskus talks to um, a representative from Wild Earth Guardians about a new climate change report. Research been done here in New Mexico about the impacts and there's public input being taken on that report right now to address uh, especially water planning for the next 50 years. So you want to get caught up on that, figure out how you can have your voice heard, and you can do that by checking out this interview. So lots more to come. That'll be out Monday morning. Until then, have a terrific weekend. Stay safe, stay healthy. <music>